Welcome in, everyone. Welcome to the Buddhist Wisdom Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is Deborah Eden Toll, um, Buddhist teacher, Buddhist author, uh, meditation teacher, um, and just all around amazing person that I feel so lucky to talk with today. And um, yeah, welcome, welcome, Eden. Yeah, welcome. Thank you, Scott. Really happy to be here with you and here with uh, those who are listening. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. So, so Eden, you know, just for all you out there, has, has written, and is it okay if I talk about <laughs> your book while you're here? Go for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Eden's has written really an incredible book. We're, we're here to chat as, you know, fellow uh, meditation and Dharma teachers, but we're also here to talk about her uh, new book. And, um, She's really written an incredible book called Luminous Darkness that, uh, you know, um, the, the publishing company reached out to me and I was reading, we know each other from, from, uh, uh, Gen X conferences, right? Uh, I think it was 2018 it. or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We could talk about the Gen X if, if that comes up, but, um, the conference of, of Western Dharma teachers and, um, Anyways, uh, the book is sent to me and, and, and I just started reading and, and, and fell in love. It's just such a, such an amazing book. Congratulations. I'm, I'm so happy for, for, for you, for us that is in the world. So I just wanted to start with that. I appreciate that. And this was a book that, uh, was a quite an internal journey, uh, a, a different one than the two other books I had written and also really took courage, really took guts. So I'm grateful that the, the product of the, the beautiful and courageous process I went through to write it uh, has been touching so many people. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I, I can't see how it wouldn't. I mean, in one way, as we get into the content of the book and, and, you know, how you relate to the content, um, you know, it does also feel like a book people need to be ready for. Um, I mean, they're, they're, it's definitely accessible to anyone, but I think that the, the, the core message is, is, I don't know if it feels like that to you, it felt like that to me. Yes. And even uh, when I first got the message that I needed to write a book about darkness, uh, I had to go into an inquiry internally around what is the right timing for this book to come out? Because darkness is not a popular topic. <laughs> no. uh, my feeling and intuition was with all that we're facing, uh, we're entering more of a ripeness where darkness and the question of what is luminous darkness becomes more meaningful. More people are ready for that. But, you know, I spent the pandemic finishing this book and the timing was right uh, when it came out. But at the beginning, there was quite a bit of pushback publisher was saying, you know, can we change the title? Darkness could be <laughs> mentioned <laughs> in the subtitle. Yeah. But no, I really wanted to write about darkness. Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad you did. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because when I first saw the title, I mean, for a luminosity is a word, an English word we use to translate Tibetan terms in the Tibetan mm -hmm. tradition, usually relates to um, the unity of appearance and emptiness uh, in, in the mind. Yes and uh our clarity and emptiness and then and then the word darkness for me is so ripe so when i just saw the title i kind of was like oh like it 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 piqued my interest but at the same time i i i i also thought of that that like oh yeah um it may be tough for some people 
to to kind of like like they're gonna have to they're gonna have to open it. <laughs> yeah, they're gonna have to open it, and they're going to have to. And and the first part of the book really invites people to examine, acknowledge, and then let go of some of our conditioned ideas about what darkness is, and that entire very rigid duality between dark and light, holding darkness as inferior, light as superior, and all the ways that impacts us personally, that impacts the lens of racism and xenophobia, and then on the spiritual path, the ways that impacts trying to get to the light, trying to transcend, kind of enlightenment held as a uh, above the body and reach through transcendence kind of concept at times yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah totally and, I, and i'd love to get into that i mean um what what you just said i feel it's it's very challenging to get that across in plain language in the sense that you know one of my struggles with traditional buddhism and and maybe this is just i, I don't know how you feel about this it's also a question um maybe it's like a stage we have to go through where we because, you know, when we create this duality, you know, this kind of godhead of awakening or godhead of, you know, whatever the Dharma represents to us, and it becomes something we chase. But we're kind of like chasing our own tails, what I started to say lately. So I don't know how you feel, you know, you, you mention it, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah, well, I love that chasing our own tail. Um Symbolic for how we chase light, uh, trying to get away from this experience, away from our shadows to something more enlightened, um, trying to pit spiritual practice as something that leads more to uh, catharsis and an arrival point rather than can we folks really strip it down and go down into our bodies, our connection with the earth, uh, into presence in a way that's courageous enough to embrace the full spectrum of yin and yang, dark and light, and to acknowledge that that's really what our practice essentially points to. But so much of the maybe uh, spiritual language sometimes, so much of the culture humans have created, even around spirituality, upholds that kind of duality. We're just funny that way. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't you know, I'm thinking of one Tibetan Buddhist teacher. He he sometimes he he's not disparaging it by calling it this. He's just appropriately naming maybe where this has a place. He calls it um, Cinderella Cinderella Dharma, mm-hmm. like you know, and, and, he, and or and, and he used the example of like um, if there's if there's a small child or a baby, and he's not trying to insult anyone with this. You know, he's he just you know we have to all look at our own mind and see where we're at. Yeah. Um, you know, if you see a baby or a kid moving towards the ledge of a cliff, you know, that, that has a thousand foot drop, you're, you're going to do anything you can and you're going to wave toys at them. You know, you're going to say, Hey, hey, come here, come here. So he kind of equates, he uses term Cinderella Dharma as well as this kind of like a lot of the, you know, initial foundational ways. I think it's presented in traditional Buddhism is, is coaxing a baby off a ledge essentially, you know? That's great. Yeah. I really appreciate that metaphor. (laughs) Yeah. 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 yeah, so that, so so in a sense, it's sort of, you know, for me, what you, what you're describing is this. It's you know, like in my path, I think I didn't realize how much dogma I was, you know, adhering to in myself. It wasn't anyone else putting any dogma on mm-hmm. me. It was just my own, you know, belief system that I didn't 
I didn't, I didn't equate that I was shifting one belief system into another. You know, I was talking with a student yesterday. It's sort of like belief systems are fine. Like we all actually need them just to get out of bed and go to the store. We need a belief. And it's just, and I think the problem is when we don't, we don't recognize or acknowledge there's a belief. And yeah. Yes. Yeah, my Dharma and, path for a long time was kind of like that. It wasn't acknowledging uh-huh. that, that that had to shift. Yeah. 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 And, and then the added challenge of sort of due to the intersubjective nature of conditioning, there's these shared collective conditioned beliefs that we hold that if our neighbor's holding, if our partner's holding and our friends are holding, we're much less likely to examine if other people in our sangha are upholding, such as light is superior to dark on yes. some elemental subconscious level so yeah this being such a path that requires uh, a badass willingness to really examine to be bored of belief right yeah, yeah. to really examine what does it mean to be free from conditioned belief yeah yeah wonderful yeah. um so much of of how you describe darkness as a metaphor uh, not only res- resonates with me, it's just something that's that I've come to in my practice mm-hmm. over time. You know, my own relationship to, to what you mean by that. But I love, you already shared some, but I'd, I'd love for you to share a little more with the listeners, kind of this aspect of darkness and, and you know, in the title and, and luminosity in the title, um, you know, j- just to introduce a little more. Sure, yeah. Well, um, first, just an awareness that when I began uh, diving into my spiritual path, I think there was very much um, an approach of still really trying to uh, effort my way to enlightenment, uh, to get somewhere, to get free of something. Sort of the solo, heroic, spiritual warrior approach where I was somehow doing battle uh, against the dark to get to the light without naming that consciously to myself, that kind of energy. And that energy so much reflects a lot of the collective conditioning that's come from the imprint on all of us of disconnect from the natural world, patriarchy, colonialism, extraction of the earth, capitalism, we could go on and on. But to name the the impact of all of that conditioning, one of the symptoms is such a disrespect for the yin as opposed to the yang. So there I was in the solo heroic spiritual warrior mode. Um, And something about the path of meditation and stilling and emptying really brought it back to not just emptying out of duality, such as light versus dark, but getting to remember the generous, steadfast, unrelentingly beautiful teacher of darkness alongside the teacher of light and getting to surrender and soften into the yin or elemental darkness, the force in nature, which is exist in balance to the light, to the yang, 
but which is, again, very underappreciated by the dominant paradigm. The great power of that in elemental darkness. So we can think of darkness really as a many-sided gem. I think it's, I noticed when I first started writing the book, I don't want to shed light on darkness. And darkness Mm. represents the, the mystery Uh, the field from which everything arises and to which everything returns. It represents the yin or still, slow, quiet, (laughs) gestating aspect of nature, Mm -hmm. the restoration aspect of nature and consciousness, as opposed to the yang, doing, attaining, producing. And so I kind of set out, how can I write about this? I use a lot of inquiry in the book to help people not draw conclusion around darkness, which would be shedding light to it. I want to focus, you know, through light, we want to focus on the rational mind and on conclusion and on putting things in categories, but give people a sort of journey themselves or a recognition of their own deep journey that's already existed into luminous darkness, uh, into the fertile darkness. (laughs) And this is such an important aspect of practice. So I'll pause there. You could say a lot. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure you could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, thank you so much. Um, That's a great and deep introduction, (laughs) you know, into it. And I think, you know, there's there's one element. Well, one thing in the book I'll I'll say is that you have a lot of um, uh, kind of like guided meditation. They're guided meditations, but they're written. You know, you see, mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. you're asking people to pause. You're asking them to, you know, engage with the practice uh, intermittently. So I really appreciated that. I just want to, you know, point that out. Um, and it, it it is in the spirit of what you're saying. You know, for me, something I came into a tool of um, is is you know I call it similar to you. I call it non conclusion based um, living or non conclusion based mm-hmm. dharma practice or whatever we want to call it. Yeah. And, um, and to me, there's this, this, this element that, that if curiosity isn't the base for that practice, um, you know, it, it, it tends for me to go into that aspect you were talking about, that sense of chasing the light, you know, which on a very raw level for me, I'm not sure, you know, I'd love to hear your experiences with this, um, that, that usually means trying to wiggle, I call it wiggle or, you know, get out of or resist or avert any kind of pain I'm going through, you know, emotional, physical, what relational, whatever. Yes. And, and so, so yeah, there's just so much there. That's, I mean, to me, those were the parts that resonated so much with, with me uh, in the book, mm-hmm. as well as kind of, mm-hmm. we do have some life spirit experiences in common. I want to, I want to get to mm-hmm. uh, also later in the, in our conversation, but yeah, I, I love, yeah, I also wanted to, you know, yeah. people, people to know real quick, you know, your background a little bit, you spent a lot of time as a Zen, a Zen monk in a, in a monastery. So that's a big part of your background. I, I was a monk as well. And so, you know, yeah, I'd love to get into that too. Yeah. We have a, a lot to explore together, a lot <laughs> yeah, of overlap. Yeah. Um, and maybe just to begin with that phrase of chasing light. And I use the phrase sun shining in my book, yeah. just this kind of spiritual bypass, um, this kind of turning away from, pain um, that's so core within the dominant paradigm. And I talk about growing up in the city of Los Angeles, uh, going through a lot of grief as a young person, which I'll talk about, but just being aware that the culture was sort of 
madly sunshining. Like the, the quiet message was, you better keep things positive, keep things surface. Don't go too deep. Um, <laughs> uh, keep things comfortable. And that really deeply detracts from our ability to uh, drop into the human experience and its richness together and to be real together. Then on to the next thing you were saying, you know, towards the beginning of the book, I use the metaphor of walking through the dark, thicketed forest. You know, I live here in the mountains of Western North Carolina, abundant with green forests and the kind of it, yeah. qualities of uh, curiosity and receptivity and attunement tactile listening with our whole bodies that we access when we are in an environment which calls us awake and when we're in the dark where we're not being guided by mm -hmm. brightly lit signs or by the rational minds brightly lit signs of uh knowing <laughs> and we're really invited into i talk about it a lot in the book as a need for endarkenment alongside enlightenment resting in that i don't know and then drawing upon this curiosity this inquiry that you're naming such a core aspect of practice and something i want to emphasize about that because i really feel that we need to develop these qualities within us they already exist but many of us have not been guided and encouraged to develop again the more yin receptive aspects but as we navigate both the spiritual path and also all the shit that's going down in our world today, the unknown, these qualities can support us so fully. And I would just add that when I really feel and sense into that quality of curiosity and um, even within the field of this conversation, the kind of curiosity that we're offering to one another rather than a conclusion focused conversation or extractive kind of listening. Yeah. It's really an expression of, of nonviolence. Curiosity and inquiry are innate expressions of nonviolence, really being willing to be with one another, to be with what's happening in our own human experience, to be with the world <laughs> through yeah. inquiry rather than putting things into categories. And those categories tend always to feed hierarchical perception, which the book talks a lot about. Light versus dark, good, bad, right, wrong, superior, inferior, which has been the cause of so much of the, the mess we're in. So I'll stop there, but I really appreciate you touching curiosity. Yeah. 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 So much there, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I, I, I'm really appreciating your your shares um, and, and you know what you're offering through this. Um, I was curious. So just to go back uh, to the title a little bit. So so the your your take, so to speak, or your experience with this and what you're sharing through the through the book and your teaching um, around, around the luminous aspect. If I'm gathering it, is that that dark? You know, we're not trying to bring light to the darkness. The darkness has luminosity itself. That's you've got it. Yes, yeah. yes, and also that it's only through opening our hearts to darkness, taking it out of this category of something I'm trying to push away, uh, that we get to receive and recognize the reality that, on one level, there is no dark and no light life exists in constant spectrum and continual yeah. flux and change and the sacred interplay of light and dark 
and there's light and dark and dark and light. The the uh, symbol of the Tao I always love that has in the middle of the light a drop of dark and in the middle of the <laughs> dark a drop of light. And that, yeah, that's, that's right. That really frees us from just our insistence on binary perception, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, wonderful way to. You know, I usually use. I, I like how you're opening up my vocabulary in the sense of like like uh, binary perception or hierarchical perception or being or doing. Uh, you know, I usually use the word duality, um, mm-hmm. right? But would those be kind of synonymous for you, more or less? Yes. Like those three terms. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I just think it's useful given what we're navigating in our world today i yeah. find the the phrase hierarchical perception particularly useful because it helps mm-hmm. people to investigate and there's some exercises in the book specifically investigating this just the the higher lower nature yeah. of how the mind categorizes and to look at come on folks let's be honest how, what has been the impact of you perceiving your this own living being through that and other beings you cross paths with and whole groups of people and all of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really totally. be free of the seed of hierarchical perception to, to recognize that awareness isn't carrying that. That's our overlay. We're bringing it forth. Humans really in, invented <laughs> it. Yeah. And people say, well, but doesn't hierarchy exist in nature? But here's the thing, even yeah. if, um, Maybe the lion carries much more might and through our model of the food chain, much more power than like the mouse. Um, are not the lion and the mouse equally held in innate value? Yes. <laughs> through yeah, yeah. the heart's perception. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we did invent the hierarchy. Yeah. 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 It seems like a, it's a necessary, well, maybe we could, you know, we could have a conversation if it's necessary, a necessary, um, uh, kind of like when there's duality in good and bad, hierarchy sort of mm-hmm. pops out as a representation of that duality, right? Yes, I mean, that's, yes, yeah. yes, you got it. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. it's an interesting one. You're, you're, you're actually inviting me into a new, a new curious, you know, open question, so to speak. <laughs> an open question for me. Some of them, they're, they're not, you know, I try to remain, I try to keep them open for as long as possible. Okay. But I have open questions that have lasted 15 years. You know? I'm <laughs> with you. Yep. Yeah. yeah, they continue to be open. But um, I do have this open question on hierarchy. Yeah, and, and you know, we don't have to, uh, uh, what do you call it, dwell on this too much. But because, um, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, there's a sense like, at, at least, you know, some some expression. I, you're aware of this, but just for some of the listeners who might not be, you know, in, in, in Buddhism, fundamentally, there's there's no good and bad because... Every sentient being is is at their at their base uh, uh, free at their base awake. You know we we call this Buddha nature uh, or has an awakened nature as their. You use the word innate. Um, sorry, I, I, what was the word you used? Perhaps innate goodness. Yeah, innate goodness. Or, yeah, there's a lot of ways to express this, and yes. I find that you know in traditional Buddhism, the Buddha nature teachings are often I find to be the the deepest, um, but even with just a, you know, for me, just a simple understanding of this is so helpful because it does take us out of that hierarchical, you know, where yes, a lion is different than a mouse and they can do different things, but it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't affect their, their innate worth. Oh, that was the word you used, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it is fascinating. I think that word worth is also very significant in today's world. 
And again, pointing to the dominant paradigm, so much struggle around worth, so much messaging, which has been enforced by um, all of the isms, certainly capitalism, of uh, the sense that people need to try to prove their worth, that you're not, your worth is based on how much you produce and do and achieve and all this complex misunderstandings around worth and what a gift that we have the simplicity of practice bringing it back to innate already existing wholeness yeah, <laughs> immeasurable totally. worth not based on anything you're doing or producing yeah yeah yeah, yeah there, there was um on this topic a hierarchy I, I wanted to raise something up to see your sure. thoughts on it get your yeah. thoughts on it yeah. but i think we're on the same page you know with, with talking mm-hmm. about you know there's are you aware of a tibetan buddhist teacher named kondro rinpoche uh, it's one of the f- few female kind of recognized as a tofu yes but teacher. i don't know much in depth so yeah yeah she's quite a force she's quite amazing mm-hmm. teacher mm-hmm. um she she, you know, she had a comment. I don't know if her views on this have changed, but it's just sort of a comment I heard a while ago where she was saying something about hierarchy, and she was saying that, you know, when and and you know how Tibetan Tibetan culture is is pretty hierarchical. You know, there's there's mm-hmm. pretty set. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of closer I see to an indigenous culture than than anything else. I mean, it has yeah. a lot of elements yeah. of indigenous cultures, mm-hmm. um, and so there's there's a sense of sort of role. We would call it hierarchy. From a, from a Western mm-hmm. perspective, but there's mm-hmm. a sense of role and there's a finite amount of roles one can go into. One can go to the monastery, one can be a farmer, one can, you know, right. do that, et cetera. Anyways, she was, she was making this point. She said, um, it wasn't on the natural hierarchy issue, but I've heard that point from other Buddhist teachers. Um, she was, she was saying that when there's not a, an overt hierarchy and, uh, and she kind of delineates between healthy hierarchy and, and unhealthy hierarchy. Right? Mm-hmm. Like she she would mm-hmm. acknowledge there can be unhealthy hierarchy. Um, she was saying, um, trying to gather my thought of it. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but uh, that hierarchy, uh, if if it's not over, if we don't have an overt kind of system in place, mm-hmm. then what happens is 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 covert hierarchy, which is worse. Mm-hmm. You know, because and she said a lot of um, so-called you know democratic thinking goes into this category because it's it, the idea is that you know everyone is equal in, in, in role and, and, and ability and all these things. But then what happens is a covert hierarchy, which creates a lot of chaos. So mm-hmm. I don't know any of you have any thoughts on that. Just that I think it's a really important topic for yeah. um, conversation, for conversation between people of different backgrounds and walks of life. Uh, in the Sangha that I guide and a lot of the trainings that I guide in collaborations with other teachers, there's a a deep pulse of inquiry into uh, moving from power over to shared power and power with. Mm -hmm. And what is the, the felt experience and how do we, through practice, through how we show up, Uh, Through relational mindfulness, which is the topic of my second book, how do we really, really nourish and encourage fields of shared power? And um, what is the damage and harm and violence that's been caused on so many levels? We can't even count through the power over model. Um, And I think it's interesting. You know, I think it's such a human tendency to create cultures based everywhere we go, even if we're 
uh, active, engaged spiritual teacher that are somehow feeding power over models that are somehow, and I think so it comes from so much deep wounding um, and the lack of modeling of what else we could be creating. So I think it's a very alive and important conversation. And that phrase that she used of covert hierarchy, yes, I think it's really, it takes, uh, I always like the phrase being a Zen detective, or yeah. really paying attention at a subtle level to what are the power dynamics going on in any relationship, in any group, there are power dynamics. So how do we work yeah. with those skillfully? But how do we bring as much awareness to hierarchy as possible so that we are not, uh, I guess, feeding covert hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. Does that resonate? Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay too. If it, I mean, I, for yeah. me, it's just still an open question. I just was really curious yeah. your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does resonate. And I think, especially I was having this, I guess, kind of, I don't know if it's a daydreaming or contemplation this morning, but just really treasuring my relationship with my, my core students lately. Um, and just really feeling very, um, I mean, I feel this often, but sometimes it comes more as a, a reflection and, and feeling of, it's a lot of appreciation, gratitude for them. And, and, and also I, I often reflect, I don't know, daily, but very frequently on the power dynamics and on my role mm-hmm. in relation to their life and how, you know, they're relating to me and I'm relating to them. And I think, you know, I don't have... I love the questions you're asking and I love the perspectives that, because I think a lot of us as Western Dharma teachers, we feel this pull that this isn't, you know, we're not, we're not in Asian Buddhist cultures. Like we didn't grow up that way. Although I do feel this is a separate topic that we should spend some time relating to them as a humble student, uh, you know, and, and, and not, not uh, uh, co-opting them so quickly into something else. Or colon, yeah. I call it. I call it a form of colonization. Mm-hmm. But um, but anyways, that's a separate topic. But aside from that, it's sort of like yeah. More and more, the pull I feel is like, how do we hold a role within someone's life, but we're not above them? And I think you know, and that's the tricky part. I'm also not their buddy. You know, it's yes. like it's, it's yes. such a tough line. You know, yes, N- not above them, not their buddy not feeding uh, or inviting every party to bring awareness to the invention of the pedestal in any field of relating that creates higher, lower. And, um, you know, I think just by more and more um, of us teaching being so willing to be seen as we are, to be uh, naked, to be transparent, to be courageously honest and also to really encourage uh, everyone on the path to take agency for their own practice yeah. uh, it's it's the the dynamic the reciprocal dynamic right between teacher and student or mentor and mentee um, and some of what I write in the book about this you know comes from the shadow side that I experienced and many people listening probably can relate to of just the ways that because, Buddhism has been informed, like so many other um, institutions in our world, through patriarchy, that there is the shadow of hierarchy in many of the forms, and that even at the monastery where I trained, where incredible training occurred, there was the shadow 
that was not contended with, that was not uh, brought forth honestly of a really unhealthy hierarchical mm. structure and a lot of harm caused by it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also a lot of delusion uh, enforced by it. So to help people bring more and more awareness to that. And again, as we've talked about not committing conclusion, you know, this is a conversation I feel that is just starting to gain momentum uh, in even really conscious circles, but that it's a lived inquiry is important. And I know it's been such a rich inquiry in my uh, sangha. What does shared power look like? How can wherever we go, we uh, learn and be willing to model that uh, out of respect for our collective and to just notice where we can keep stripping down and stripping away the old model. Yeah. And one more thing about it, you know, you said this in your own words, but just to not detract from the exquisite beauty of discipleship and the uh, profound love we have for our teachers and those who have gone before us. It's not to detract from that, but it's to bring in um, enough of accountability and honesty and awareness of power dynamics that it's healthier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, yeah, yeah and I, I do see a, a slight difference in how this uh, gets um, embodied uh, depending on the context. So like, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. we don't have to go into it now, but Vajrayana Buddhism is very, very specific. And how and how the teacher student role happens, and it's it's actually very profound in the sense that it's very similar to, to this this meta, the, one of the ways you describe the metaphor of darkness, which is a lot of it. I find you can't know until you're in it and you're engaging with it, and so it's almost it's almost you know we use this term sometimes in Vajrayana Buddhism. It's almost self secret. But from the outside, it can sometimes looks dysfunctional because there's devotion involved and things like that. And also there, yeah. there can be unhealthy power dynamics, you know? Right. Right. right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, but there's, there's, there's kind of two things I want to, you know, just, just listening to you. I wanted to also invite, you know, bring into our conversation, which is um, uh, there's, there's kind of two things I've noticed of impeccable, Teachers, uh, you know, I've had contact with impeccable meaning. They're not perfect, but impeccable in that their 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 intention is 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 clear, and they're also navigating their own darkness and the impact their intention has, and they're mm -hmm. navigating that, mm -hmm. and they're they're adjusting and they're working with. You know, to me, it's very much like we a work together. It's not like I know or my teacher knows the answers for anyone. It's just yeah. we're, we're working on enlightenment together. I very much feel that. And so within that kind of spirit of working, we're working on this together. Um, I've noticed really teachers I respect and appreciate, uh, especially in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there can be, because of the Vajrayana model of guru student and that guru word being so misinterpreted and mm -hmm. the culture of mm -hmm. sanghas sometimes. And the, the, it's just, I see it as a, uh, it's a growing pain. Of, of one tradition moving from one culture to another. But there can be a lot of, of giving away of one's agency, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I did this initially uh, in the beginning, meaning like, you know, projecting onto the teacher, you know, they're enlightened. So, so they can have my power and, and it doesn't happen consciously. It's something very unconscious, I think for a lot of people mm -hmm. and some people, you know, eventually realize that and, and they, they take their agency back. 
Um, but what I found with inscrupulous, you know, with, with very scrupulous and, and teachers I respect a lot is they never take that agency. <laughs> you know, they never, they never, they never take the bait. They always deflect and give it, you know, they don't even, I don't know. And, and sometimes that can feel uncomfortable. Like I know with, with my, some of my main teachers, um, them not taking the bait on that actually mm-hmm. felt like a rejection in the beginning. Uh-huh. But what mm-hmm. it was, was I, I realized later, was the, just such kindness, you know, just putting yes. the mirror back to me, putting the mirror back to me. Incredible generosity, incredibly mm-hmm. skillful response coming from humility. And as you said, not taking the bait. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. it is bait. And I, and I do feel darkness is a great metaphor and the way you use it as well uh, mm-hmm. for also our journey as Dharma teachers. Because I mean, I don't know about you, I'm engaging plenty of darkness on a daily basis. And I think, I, I think you are, otherwise you wouldn't have written this book. And, and I also mean that in all areas of my life. So, you know, engaging that darkness in relation to my, my you know, my role as a meditation teacher, engaging it in my relation, uh, you know, to my role as a husband, a father, friend. And I think it's sort of at some point, you know, I want to, I want to hear your, you kind of already spoke to this, but I'd love to see if there's more to, to, to mine here together, um, which is the sense of like, at some point we just have to recognize and there's nowhere to hide, you know, and that if we really want to wake up, we can't hide. And then we turn over every area of our life. That's it's so uncomfortable. I, like for me, it's still very uncomfortable. Yes, yes, yes. And that willingness to embrace discomfort, resiliency, yeah. and to recognize you know, before coming to practice, we think of uncomfortable as, oh, I better go in the other direction because I'm trying to sunshine, right? Dominant paradigm is showing me that in order to be a, a happy or successful person, I'm supposed to keep things light, right? And that it's actually, uh, we learn quite the opposite, that the depth of awareness and love that is who we are uh, is not othering is not excluding anything. (laughs) And in order for us to remember that and align with that, we have to start turning towards rather than away from everything that's uncomfortable. It doesn't mean, please listeners, don't take this to mean that the path is always uncomfortable (laughs) or that, you know, exercising the story, the practice is just hard work. Um, No, that's not so. But that we need to embrace discomfort as exactly something that the the bomb of love that our curiosity is can meet. So you're not asked immediately to embrace all of it, uh, to celebrate it, just to begin to turn towards it with this inquiry. And I'm going to go back, I think, to to nonviolence. That it's it's so really violent to be. Uh, categorizing life in the ways that the conditioned mind does and to be turning away from one half of our existence, one half of nature and consciousness, if we're turning away all that we consider dark, and to also be using the term darkness to justify sort of pushing away in a closet all that which we don't want to contend with. And so as you were talking, I just got this beautiful felt sense of the humility and generosity, the weave between those two qualities, that everyone on the path who's willing to to live in the question, to question together, 
to not so much come to conclusion, to walk through the dark together, to meet the unknown with absolute reverence and respect, and to recognize that we are continually navigating the unknown, um, contending with the mystery. And as you were talking, I had such a feeling of love come up inside, um, that it's an offering of love to live in this way. And it, it's both soft and vulnerable, right? And carries a, an immense, immeasurable strength to it as well, because it's such an expression of the commitment of being willing to be awake in this moment, regardless of what is, right? To whatever That's, is. Totally, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'll share something. And, you you know, you and I have have kind of death in our families as an as an early experience, an early life experience. And I'd love to share one passage from your book, if that's okay, in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I just had a death recently of uh, one of my main root teachers, Alama Zopram mm-hmm. Shay. Mm-hmm. He died last week, and mm-hmm. um, he, you know, I had this moment. What what you were just saying? The reason I thought of it is, I had this moment. I was kind of sitting with a mixture of grief like incredible gratitude last last week and mm-hmm. and just like and also just feeling his mind everywhere i mean one of the beliefs in in the vajana perspective of the dharma is that the when when we all die we get to encounter this thing called the dharmakaya which is our mm-hmm. raw enlightened mind and most people unfortunately don't recognize it because they didn't train to recognize it so then they kind of move their consciousness moves on but practitioners can can rest in that in that clear light mind, and um, and more or less, uh, I don't know. It's so hard with language because because I we're we're in this. I don't want to ruin our beautiful <laughs> collection of uh, uh, language here, but you know they're able to kind of stay in that that experience, right? Yes. But yes. it's actually beyond permanence or impermanence. It's something yeah. beyond any kind of way we can think. Anyways, so I can kind of. I was trying to tune into that in the sense of like his mind and oh that's what i was going to say there's there's a sense i don't know if it's uh this is kind of i don't know if it's just how i think of it i have heard other teachers express this there's a sense of that dharmakaya mind you know we want to think of mind or self or other as being somewhere right mm-hmm. as being mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. something and there's a sense uh there's a when we try to understand what dharmakaya is it's not something that's location-based because it's it's everywhere it's kind of everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just felt that so strongly uh, sitting with, with, he was in meditation for three days before he fully left his body. His breath stopped, but then he remained in Tukdam mm-hmm. uh, for a few days. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was just connecting with his enlightened mind or, you know, his mind in that space of clear light, uh, the, the, the foot, the luminous darkness, <laughs> so to speak. Yes. Um, and he, um, Anyways, I got this impression. I don't know how to put it in words, but you just sparked it for me. Um, this sense, I'll try to, this sense of like the the full leaning into the chaos of what life appears and looks like. And that, like this courage you just spoke of. I, you know, he was, he, I don't know if you know much about Lama Sopram but he was like, he was like, he was like the embodiment of, of a Bodhisattva. There was just this, his whole, every second of his life was lived for the benefit of others. And that's, you know, was his main teaching most of the time. And he didn't sleep. So he stopped sleeping about 40 years ago. And he's just like, you know, just these qualities that are kind of superhuman, but 
when I really look at his 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 activity, that's the thing I kept coming back to: this courageousness to to open to others consistently and abundantly, generously, all the time. Mm-hmm. And I was and I was like, that's amazing. Because if I look at my experience and my kind of edges, that's so challenging sometimes because mm-hmm. of my own limitations, my own inability, you know, to stay in the, the language of our conversation, to meet the darkness of mm-hmm. that relationship or moment with that relationship or situation. And I just was like, wow, that that is a true enlightened quality when someone's able to be that just full time. That's what I felt from him. Mm-hmm. And so I just felt this sense of like, I don't know, just the the you know openness uh, uh from him that that is is kind of like fully in darkness but it but but as you're starting to point out it's not dark in the way people normally you know that is the luminosity mm-hmm. because there's this expression of courage that comes from that right? yes yeah i'm i'm so touched uh, by you sharing about him i'm gonna look him up and learn more about him after this and just acknowledging his passing and my heart is with you and acknowledging the immensity of your own direct experience in the wake of his passing of uh, feeling his presence everywhere and reminding us that one of the other teachings of darkness is when we are caught in a light-centric world and caught and distracted and seduced as we get by the sense that the material world is what's real, uh, physical form is what's real, uh, what we see is what we get. We forget the entire backdrop of darkness from which all form arises. And um, again, we, we forget the medicine of non-local awareness, as you're saying. It's not that you felt him everywhere, not just here. And in this, there's a quote from Rilke that came to mind and heart as you were speaking that I share in the book, but something about you describing the generosity. Um, I hear this inclusivity in his willingness to open, not excluding anything or anyone. And so this is a poem by Rilke called The Night. And he says, you darkness of whom I am born, I love you more than the flame that limits the world to the circle it illuminates and excludes all the rest. But the dark embraces everything, shapes and shadows, creatures and me, people, nations, just as they are. It lets me imagine a great presence stirring beside me. I believe in the night. Oh. Rilke <laughs> always says it so so well. <laughs> that's, a, that's in your is that in your book? Is that quoted? Yeah. In your book? yeah, yeah, yeah. When I first began writing the book, and I told one of my mentors, who's Joanna Macy, about the yeah. book, she walked right over to her bookshelf and got out that poem. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and we just hung out with it for a while. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Without further ado, and then I, I'd love to, mm-hmm. I like to flag things because I forget them otherwise uh, with, with, with guests is that um, I'd love to talk about sort of also the process in, in a few moments of, of leaning in. How do we lean into darkness? Because I think, you know, we're talking a lot about it, but, you know, I would like to share part of your book first, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. This really touched me and um, 
yeah, and let's see where we go with this. Um, so, so to the listeners, we're gonna we're gonna continue with a little darkness theme. <laughs> we're gonna continue with that a little more. So, uh, yeah. So, um, this is in the chapter on on the passing of your father. You know, um, one quick thing I'll say to the listener: what I so appreciated about your book, and I don't know if this was the editor or or what, but you know, you went into so much depth on luminous darkness as well as practice. You know, I'm leaning into it somewhat in, in the first few few chapters and then and then by the time i got to this part where you start to talk more you know about this very profound um yeah like one of the most challenging experiences we can have in our life losing a parent um it was so re- it was like it was the perfect timing i don't know like if you would have started the book with that i don't know it wouldn't have had the same impact for me so i don't know if you have any I would just say that, you know, I think, and, and you can feel into this as you're a teacher as well. When a teacher writes a book, it's an offering of teaching. What's the process of teaching? What's the evolution, the emergence? And there's a, a really kind felt sense, right, that we, we hold uh, as guides for how to help people learn. And I always, I'll just point out the Word facilitation uh, comes mm. from the, the root to make easier, to make easier mm. consciousness, right? So I think there's a, I, whenever I write a book, it's a, I'm clear that I'm giving a teaching and there's a process through which people learn. So thanks for saying that. Yeah, go on. Go on. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought of what actually I, I also mm. wanted to say around it too was like, I felt so, so grateful to you in the sense like, it felt by the time we got to this point, it's, it's, it's quite intimate. And I, I felt really, you know, I, I want to express that gratitude to you for inviting me as a reader into that intimacy in your life. Cause it was mm-hmm. like, I felt like you were, I don't know. It felt like this point where you're like, okay, the reader got to this point. So now they're invited into more of my, my darkness yeah. in a way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Very beautiful. Okay. So, um, it's not a long passage, but, um, On the night of my dad's funeral, my younger sister and I slept at a friend's house with our closest girlfriends. My mother needed a rest and my friends were encouraged to help cheer me up. We were preteens and liked mischief. Uh, So on that night, we tiptoed downstairs to sneak cookies from the pantry, steal a bra from the teenage sister and put it in the freezer (laughs) and toilet paper at a neighbor's house. I remember the aftermath of my father's funeral as feeling surreal. Despite the good intentions of my friends, I gave birth to a part of me then who can numb out to pain at will. I learned how to use food, socializing. Sorry, I'm getting teary. Yeah. Take your time. Yeah. Um, I learned how to use food, socializing, and reading to stifle. to stifle feelings that my world was not safe. I had lost the core source of security in my life and had to face fears I had not known before. Um, I learned then how to go through the motions that everything was okay to fit into community, to fit in with the community. I began to understand that good times were the preferred state of connection. I learned then to put a smile on my face in every circumstance, even while shedding tears inside. What I actually needed then was permission to grieve for as long as it took to move through a uh, loss as a sacred rite of passage. 
I did not need the modeling of appearing to be okay, quote, but really support for me bringing closure to life as I had known it. I had experienced loss before when my grandparents and uncle were killed by a drunk driver on a curvy mountain road a few years prior, but this was different. This was my father. I needed guidance on how to inhabit my body and stay present through tumultuous, earth-shaking emotions I had never felt as I witnessed my father's body sicken and decay. I needed support for integrating the lessons of loss, and I needed guidance as I stepped into the unknown to meet an entirely new and unfamiliar phase of life. Above all, I needed to understand that death was, a nat was as natural as birth. I needed reassurance that I would be okay without the companionship and protection of my father. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, I, I'm tearing up because I'm, well, first of all, I'm just connecting to the, the, the beauty, beauty of your experience here in its darkness as well. And, um, and my own relationship, you know, when my mom died, you know, what, you know, what happened and all. How old were you, Scott, when that happened? I was, a I was older than you. So I was, uh, six, I was, did I turn oh, 16? Yeah. Fi well, about 16 years old, maybe well, the end of well. 15 years. Yeah. How did she pass? She had cancer. So it was, it was, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. your father's passing. He had, he got cancer and then he it was kind of a shock because he only, they said he had a month to live, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a misdiagnosis of melanoma. Um, yeah. And yeah, when you, I just want to say there was something really kind and generous of you reading that passage. And I had tears come up as well. And just the fact that you did it, you know, this is such a, a simple and foundational and shared human experience of like, facing really radically facing impermanence for perhaps the first time and loss of life as we knew it and in a paradigm that at least for me didn't have the support and the wisdom and like even noticing there were very few adults who knew how to relate with me then I often felt people trying to cheer me up or like the sense of like Let's get you through grief as quickly as possible. Um, yeah. Like that expectation was there, even though grief is such a wild, forceful, powerful expression of organic energy that needs to be held lovingly as it takes its time and pace, right? And um, just for us all and listeners too, like to recognize the coping behaviors we picked up, the survival strategies we picked up in those times when we were not met with the, the care and the recognition of what we were going through and the love and the permission for darkness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When that's what was happening. Like, yeah. 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 yeah for me, it's very similar. I mean, she had a, a, what I was getting to is she had a longer battle. It was like a two or two year decline, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that, mm -hmm. you know, there's several points in that, you know, the, the, the emaciation, the, you know, mm -hmm. you, I didn't want to see my mom. It wasn't even, it was, it wasn't just the death, right? Uh, it's the, it's the seeing them deteriorate and seeing, you know, what real impermanence looks like of, of the body mm -hmm. and of this human life. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, what you were, what you were stating there. Yeah, I remember it at her funeral. I she's she's buried on a hill in the Bay Area overlooking Hapoon Bay, uh, mm. in the San Mateo County. And um, I remember 
just so, I was so pissed off and annoyed with everyone there. You know, now I feel bad because also they're grieving and I, you know, but as, as you're expressing sort of, I felt this, it wasn't, you know, people would, you know, I didn't feel genuineness from people, even though I'm sure uh, uh, quite a few of them were being gen- genuine. But there was this sense, as you expressed too, of uh, kind of like the grief wasn't being allowed. And I think that was that was where, where my anger came from. I think anger was also a form of resistance to my own grief. Um, but I remember kind of walking away from from the funeral, meaning she was being buried. And, and I walked away and sat on my own kind of on, a, on, on the hill. And um, I had such a profound, I mean, to me, that was the start of my Dharma path, actually. Mm-hmm. I had some something spoke to me, you know, in that moment. I was just looking at the sky and I just got this deep insight. I don't even know how to describe it in words. It was just something like there's more. And and that was the only kind of moment for me that that I remember some, you know, lightness, so to speak, but but or at least mm-hmm. like hope. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I went back home and and just punched holes, you know, punched holes and and cardboard boxes in the garage as there was because it was a jewish funeral so people were coming to the house for three days and i was just like leave me the fuck alone you know it was so so challenging yeah Yeah, i can so relate to what you're sharing into that anger piece and just the the natural uh, the wisdom of anger as an expression to this sacred grief is not being recognized. It's literally not being given room and space by this society who's yeah. playing a game where we're so pushing away death. Um, and just how that feels as a young person. Yeah. yeah. And um, just some something coming up around, you know, it sounds like for for both of us, that experience of like, huh, there's something we're supposed to be fitting into instead of feeling this and being with this. And the beauty of uh, Dharma conversations, the beauty of Sangha, and the beauty for um, the ways we bring relational mindfulness into our ordinary everyday life that allow for welcoming for the full human experience, that allow for... Uh, conversations where heart mind is integrated and there's room for all of it that allow for discomfort that allow for awkwardness that allow for just everything that we bring and carry just that basic relief Um, my teacher used to say you know practice makes people a social relief (laughs) and one of the things around that is like we don't have interest in social conditioning or what's considered etiquette or like Mm. that becomes so boring when we (laughs) instead recognize what it is to, to meet the multidimensionality of being human in a down to earth, real, honest, transparent way where it's all welcome. Just that, just that where it's all welcome, the joy, the ecstasy and the grief and the pain. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I told you. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that's been the process of, you know, welcoming, uh, recognizing that the welcoming is not as painful as I think it's going to be. I think that's an element yeah. of darkness too. It's like we have this predisposition to avert because we think it's going to be it's going to be more painful than it actually is. Yes, or we think it's going to take a lot more work than it actually is. Without recognizing yeah. that holding things in aversion, resisting, turning away 
It is draining so much of our life force. It is causing so many people to feel numbed out to their vibrant vitality. Like <laughs> the turning towards is is uh, easy in a sense because it's just bringing into our awareness the all that is, and that's a softening. Softening is relaxing, folks, right? Yeah. And it doesn't mean there's not profound trauma to be with and meet sometimes in that darkness, fear to meet yeah. as we face that darkness, um, doubt, but we have what it takes. Uh, true natures can carry you. <laughs> it's got yeah. it. Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah. yeah and, there, there, you know, I, I love how you brought up the cultural aspects around death as well. I mean, there's there's something in there that I really resonated with too was, um, I, I don't know if it was your experience. I mean, you, you described the teenage experience of kind of like naughtiness coming out as as a way for your friends. I don't know if it was your friend's idea or your idea, but you know, I had the same thing. My my mine was a, a bit more uh, X-rated. <laughs> so, but but you know, the the day of my mom's funeral, I, I was part of the punk rock community in, in the Bay Area. And the the punk band I was in, my friends were like, "Okay, we're going to take you out at night." You know, there's a sense of like vice being the answer. You know, because I think there's this yeah. sense of like anger and aversion and, and and like you were naming this sense of like we can't feel all that and then what's going to replace that is vice you know or some yeah. sort of mater materialism and so yeah yeah we went out and uh, uh this is the first time admitting this but uh but i but i feel it's it's kind of necessary um we went out and it just got really drunk and went to like a they took me to like a strip club and i remember feeling so awkward I mean, the drunk part I was okay mm -hmm. with, but, you know, because I was drinking at a young age and I don't know, it, it didn't, but the, I felt so even more disconnected. I remember mm -hmm. being there mm -hmm. being like, what mm -hmm. the fuck am I doing? My mm -hmm. mom just died. And it was like this yeah. strong sense of like aversion to me of averting, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But it was just so natural for my friends to be like, oh, let's do this. This is going to cheer you up, you know? And it's like the, the ultimate dude like thing to do, go get drunk and go to a strip right. club. <laughs> right, right. At like 15 years old. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, two things come up for me as I hear you talk about that. And one is just the the severity of where we will go to try to get away from intense feelings. And there is no feeling more intense than grief. I mean, come on, we're all being asked to, to feel so much grief about the loss of living systems on our planet right now, about what's happening in this country, holy shit, yeah. about racism and xenophobia. And we're seeing, we, we're all bearing witness to the ways, the very, um, uh, humbling ways that many people are turning away from or trying to turning up the notch on uh, disconnected entertainment and trying to keep sun shining and all of that, right? Yeah. It also strikes me just because there is such a, uh, I spend some time holding conscious grief circles. Um, one of the fields of work I guide is called the work that reconnects created by eco-philosopher Joanna Macy. And um, through that work, there's a lot of conscious grief circles uh, and rituals, one called the Truth Mandala that I guide mm -hmm. quite regularly for honoring our pain and love for our world. And it just strikes me that it is also really important to go down into our bodies, to connect with Eros, to connect with our mythological uh body and experience yeah. i don't know maybe something about 
go into a strip club. That <laughs> stirred bad as well. <laughs> but like something so primal that we need to meet yeah. grief from not a heady place, not a numbed out place, not a rational conversation place, and not a place that disallows the full spectrum to be there, but from very conscious, compassionate, and primal <laughs> yeah. place yeah. within, right? I wish I was given that space as a young person. Instead, yeah. I clamped down. I had to do some years later of somatic healing work around my <laughs> fifth chakra and jaw for that sort of planted on um, smile or uh, keep things pleasant kind yeah. of approach because I was feeling so much inside, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that you brought that up that, that again, including, you know, for me, that, that experience of wait, sexuality, we, we could just do a whole nother podcast oh, on that sexuality. And we should, and because yeah, we should. Important, <laughs> so important. Yeah. You're most welcome. Uh, I would love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think, I think you're naming something. I mean, for me, it was sort of like you caught onto it. And that's one of the reasons I shared it as well is sort of like the things that are so, I don't know, so raw, like our sexuality, mm -hmm. and then how those get twisted, you know, through modern representations of of avoidance, basically, yes. of entertainment, of uh, you know, like how how the masculine, you know, the the you know the unhealthy masculine sees that we need to act that out or be, um, and you know, especially because I was still actually, I mean, technically, I was kind of I was a boy. I mean, I was a mm -hmm. teenager, but I would say I was more mm -hmm. of a boy than a man. Um, those, those, those senses got ingrained in me, you know, and, and there was always that uh, uncomfortability because there was that shift because there's, you know, there's the, 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 the darkness of, of sexuality as an example, that, like I said, we can do another podcast on that. But to me, there's a whole doorway there and, oh, and, yeah. and why sexuality I think is so, so ripe is because it's one of the most powerful doorways for going. It, it, I, I feel it, it gets very, there's no middle way, just sort of mm -hmm. goes to extremes, you know, mm -hmm, either way, mm -hmm. it either opens yeah. and becomes a vehicle yeah. for awakening or it just goes, you know, if we engage it, it goes down yeah. the dark path. So, yeah. And there's yeah. such a paradigm in our world of repression versus explosion. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> As if there's yeah. two options. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, I would just say I think we should schedule that conversation because yeah. I think people would benefit from it deeply. And it's a really rich inquiry. And just um, on this topic, because we got here through starting with grief and then yeah. the, the primal energies. Um there's a section in the book called the Verdant Cavern of the Underworld, you know, recognizing that when we're pushing away darkness, we're generally pushing away uh, such a rich, vibrant field of uh, primal, primordial experience that exists in our bodies. You know, the sex spirit divide and body spirit divide are part of this um, light versus dark uh, yeah. duality. And I share in the book a lot about, because you spoke of anger, when I finally became a monastic and I arrived there in like the first 10 days was picturing like, oh, I'll arrive to the monastery and I'll start uh, relaxing into this uh, deep Zen peace. And instead I met like 
my anger, my rage, to a degree to which I never had. I named this part of me electric. She was electric with anger. And of course, it was all this energy that had been repressed and pushed down. And luckily, my teacher was brilliant and gave me a, a wide, spacious field and encouragement to not demonize the anger as a non-spiritual or to really embrace and get to know this part of me. But um it's just so important in today's world, especially where there is so much intelligence in uh, claiming our emotions and really feeling as part of the natural feedback system for the earth, I think, all that does pulse through us in response to the tumult of our times. Does that resonate with you? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's schedule that um, because I think, you know, there's a book that's impacted me lately heavily, a, a book called Work, Sex, Money by uh, Chung and Chung Rinpoche. I think it's his best work, uh, hands down. Um, but, it, but it does relate to what we're talking about because like, you know, often work, sex, money are the things that trigger, that trigger our afflictive emotions the most. Right. And, and that they're the, they're the things that bring out, you know, the dark that, and then we refuse that dark and often we're, you know, fighting with the darkness around that. Actually, you know, yeah. for me, I don't know, for other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just one one piece we haven't touched so much. This has been yeah. such a rich conversation and we could go on for hours. Yeah, sorry, I know I know the time. Um, I actually, we really could. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then I have a request. <laughs> sure, yeah. I just wanted to name that there's also a way that pushing away this more of our primordial experience, our primal experience, pushing away Eros and our earth body is a way of really clinging to, like we cling to egocentricity, um, anthropocentricity. And mm -hmm. also, I love the phrase wake-centricity that Andrew mm -hmm. Holacek invited me to, of kind of focusing on the domain of day, the human-built world. Again, this materialism of what we see is what we get. Forgetting that we are expressions of Gaia and forgetting our animal bodies and forgetting to honor the wilderness, both externally and internally. So that's a whole other piece, but just to darkness helps us to reconnect with something beyond anthropocentricity. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Our familiar orientation. So go for it. You're on. Yeah, I know. I just, I just, to re I, I know we're, we're, we're uh, at the end of what we scheduled, but just to request, uh, if you have a few more minutes, you know, I'd love to share with the listeners some, you know, just, just before we close some way to some ways you lean into your darkness. I mean, you share a lot in the book, but if there's anything you want to share here, because um, we've talked so much about it. You know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let me see what's alive in this moment around this. You know, first, what's arising, just so, so simple, but the deepest encouragement for everyone to really, really be generously welcoming of all of those experiences that make you feel vulnerable. Um, vulnerability, I believe, is actually the, the pathway, the gateway to authentic power, to the shared power, power with that we were talking about earlier. And everything that we tend to label dark is also in some form uh, making us feel vulnerable. And if we're willing to really turn it around for, for years, and this has to do in part with um, I got bit by a tick when I was a monastic and had Lyme to navigate for a number of years. A great teacher, 
of darkness. Uh, one of my greatest spiritual teachers was lying. But that willingness to fully be with the vulnerability of our personal experience, of our shared experience, and equal to that, to be willing to spend time in physical darkness, whether that means closing the eyes or in Zen, we have quite a practice of softening the gaze, of just pausing often or even going through your day with a soft, receptive gaze where the eyes are not actively trying to attain anything. They're not one-pointed, but uh, more, we might say, tuned in to perceiving wholeness, perceiving through wholeness, so to play with the soft gaze, and to simply allow physical darkness to be a teacher, like bring curiosity to being in the dark, to noticing how your other senses open in the dark, to questioning as an inquiry in the very way that Scott has framed, not looking for conclusion, what is darkness if not the absence of light? What is my experience of this darkness? And to just see what begins to unfold, yeah? Um, there's much more I could say, but um, encourage people to pick up a copy of Luminous Darkness and to engage in some of the practices and exercises. And there will also be some um, retreats and online offerings on the topic. So you can learn more on my website about that. Yeah. Well, and you, yeah. I'll put your website in the in the notes in, in YouTube, but um, um, it, wh where can people reach you? Just in, It's my full now. name, DebraEdenTull.com. And I run a nonprofit called Mindful Living Revolution, and you can find me there through social media. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Eden, uh, it's just like, wow, this has been, I, I didn't expect, you know, the shares I shared to come out, but, you know, I think it, it's a, it's a testament to your also um, seat. I, I was going to use the word power, but your seat as a, as a human being and, and teacher. So, so just really really appreciate this yeah it's been really well fun. i feel so touched uh, scott to connect with you in this way i feel like we were in the same room physically just yeah. going into a place that was really intimate and um thank you so much for the presence that you bring yeah thank yeah. you yeah and i'm I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to more when an when an hour and a half or a little less than an hour and a half goes by <laughs> so fast i'm like okay yeah. we, got, we got more to talk about <laughs> i'm with you completely yeah cool yeah. yeah, thank you so much. And everyone, please, please, please check uh, Eden out. Uh, and and all the, like I said, I'll put the put the uh, the links in, in YouTube. Yeah. Thank Thanks you, so Scott. Much. Thank yeah. you, everyone listening.